Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's friend is Paul Brown, and I'm very happy to say that. Paul Brown has been playing old-time music and telling the old-time music story and making radio for longer than I've been alive. So the opportunity to interview him and play with him meant so much to me and also made me extremely nervous, and it didn't help that I got real sick right before we recorded this. Fortunately, as you'll learn in this interview, Paul's story is full of gratitude for his mentors, and he's great at paying it forward. So between that and his humor and amazing musicianship, I totally forgot how miserable I was prior to our interview, and I had a great time. Before we get into the episode, I want to talk a little bit about how this show is made. For the first two years of Get Up In The Cool's run, I did a little October fundraiser where I featured some of my best guests and offered extra rewards for the show's supporters. The first year, I basically just needed gas money so I could tell my family that my new time-consuming hobby wasn't a money pit. By the time the second fundraiser rolled around, uh, lots of you had started supporting the show, enough that I was feeling awkward about not sharing that money with my guests. So, even though most podcasts and radio shows don't pay their guests, I decided to use that fundraiser to make a guest budget, and y'all raised 50 bucks an episode to help me thank all of the amazing musicians that come on the show. And that money, when paired with an exposure to an amazing niche fan base, I'm talking about you now, it's made a huge positive difference in my relationship with guests. So thank you so much. And now I'm coming to you again, hat in hand, a third time to ask you to fund this show. It's Get Up in the Cool Month. January is going to feature five of the show's biggest and best episodes ever. In return, please consider supporting Get Up in the Cool financially. It is now my primary source of income, thanks to a very small percentage of my listeners. However, is it enough to live on? Absolutely not. I had to make a leap of faith because I can't work a full-time job and make this at the same time. I have some other revenue streams like lessons and performances, but Get Up in the Cool takes a lot of my bandwidth, and it needs to pay accordingly. So, what's my goal for this month? I want 50 of you to become new or upgrading supporters of the show. I don't think that's crazy. I know that about 1,500 of you listen to every episode, so if at least 3% of you signed up or upgraded, I would feel significantly better about continuing to make this show. For the remaining 97% of you, this month, I really need your help. And if you can't pay for Get Up in the Cool, you got to talk about it to everyone. And you got to share this link on social media, patreon.com slash getupinthecool. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash getupinthecool. I also included a link in the show notes for this episode. So all you need to do is copy and paste it into a Facebook post. Let's talk about rewards. There is a new reward tier for $2.50 an episode where you get a thank you shout out on the show and access to some new bonus content I'm releasing this month. For example, if you sign up at that level or higher, a full video version of this episode will be available for you to watch on the Patreon feed. And throughout the next month, I'll post some more bonus episodes and videos for you to check out. At $5 an episode, you'll get access to the weekly bonus track podcast, which you can now listen to on your favorite app. Every guest on the show plays an additional tune or song with me, not featured in the interview, and it's always great. And sometimes it's the best tune we play. Do not miss out. 
At $8 an episode, you can download all the tunes and songs ever played on the show as digital albums. And at $12 an episode, you can hang out with me every month for an online interactive banjo workshop. And each reward tier includes every reward in the tiers below it. So, in other words, you'll be well rewarded for helping me make this show. But the biggest reward, I think, is pride in keeping a cool thing alive. To sign up, go to patreon.com slash getupinthecool, which is linked in the show notes for this episode and on Facebook, or just go to getupinthecool.com and click Patreon. Okay, the fundraiser part is over for now. Just a couple more things before we get started. I want to thank Elderly Instruments in Lansing, Michigan for sharing Get Up In The Cool online with their customers and drastically increasing the reach of the show. Next time you need an instrument upgrade or new music gear, go stock up at elderly.com. I also want to thank Mountain Grass for having us out to play and putting Get Up In The Cool on the official festival schedule. If you're going to be in Central Victoria, Australia next November, you really should check it out. Make sure to stick around after the interview and I'll tell you how to hear Paul's recorded works and see him live in concert. But first, here's my interview and jam with Paul Brown. Enjoy. Welcome to Get Up in the Cool. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's great to be here. It is uh, it is an absolute honor 
to have you on the show. Um, you have been doing kind of what I do for just so much longer than I have. <laughs> and uh, it's just, uh, I'm a little bit nervous, but just you've been so uh, disarming in our preparation for this, and that I think that's exactly what I needed. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure. And uh, you know how I always thought about radio is just uh, speak to one person. That's what I would do every morning yeah. on the world news. I'd pick out someone I knew who listened to uh, NPR, and I would speak to that person. I'd tell them the news that day. And then the same thing with music. So that's yeah. all you have to do. So I'm really happy to be here, <laughs> and especially with you. So I have so many, uh, I have so many things to ask you about. I want to ask you about radio. I want to ask you about old time music and Tommy Gerald. And uh, we only have an hour, but um, maybe we could just start with what's, what did we just play? That was a tune called "Lady of the Lake," which I learned from an elderly fiddler in Galax, Virginia. His name was Parley Parsons. He lived right downtown in a big old brick house up just on the hill above the immediate downtown area in Galax. And um, he was one of the very last of the really antique-style southwestern Virginia fiddle players Mm. still living in the 1980s. He and Luther Davis and a gentleman by the name of Hick Edmonds were about the last three people who played in some of these really old styles that had a big... Celtic sound. They sounded sort of like sometimes English dance tunes, sometimes like modal Celtic tunes, and they had very little of the sort of African-American syncopation in them. They were stately Hmm. tunes that you could have done a country dance to. So uh, those guys were really, really interesting to meet and to see and to watch play and learn Hmm. from. So um, you have your own sort of special version of this tune. Yeah. What happened, you know, you think about all these interesting versions that we hear of of various tunes, those who are interested in um, collecting music, and and a lot of us who are into old-time music, traditional music, listen to field recordings every chance we get, you know, and we pass them around, and did you you hear this version of such and such a tune by someone? And we think about tradition being very... Traditional, very high-bound. It's passed from one person to the next, and the one person plays it almost exactly like the person of the previous generation. At least that's what we're told. But that's not what I found out at all when I was hanging around with old-time fiddlers. Every one of them, each one of them, had a unique individual sound on every tune. Mm. They may have learned from someone else, but they had their own sound. So this tune I heard from Mr. Parsons. And I thought I had it right, and I just was going on playing it for years until I decided one day that I wanted to go back and listen to the tape recording I'd made at his home. And I found that after 10 or 15 years, I had completely altered the second part, and I actually had made it harder. But I liked it better, so I've kept my (laughs) second part of Lady of the Lake. So we sort of switched back and forth between yeah, those two versions. Yeah, we did. Versions. We played yeah. a little bit of each of them this go-round. Yeah. But his part went, you know, it was kind of straightforward, and it went... And somehow I managed to make that into... And then that's when I realized how many of these versions of tunes that we hear really were either the product of faulty memory on someone's part, because there were no tape recorders back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, or 
Just like everybody else in the world, traditional fiddlers are creative musicians. Same thing with banjo pickers. Well, what's wrong with that? So they made their own versions. Mm. Well, the day that Mr. Parsons played this Lady of the Lake also, um, I about fell on the floor because there's another version of the tune that is really well known, but it's from nearby Hillsville, Virginia. Norman Edmonds played it with his old timers. And, he, and his sons who played the guitar and their bass player, um, they either heard it differently or something. So they wound up playing it in another key. It worked. He was still playing it really in the old time A modal and they were basically backing the tune up in D. Yeah. <laughs> and it sort of took on a new life of its own. But it, I realized, was the same tune that Mr. Parsons was playing and that was another revelation. I'll, I'll never forget when I heard him and I went, oh my gosh, this is where Mr. Edmonds got his tune. It was from these old players and their predecessors but he made something completely different out of it. Mm. And everyone loves it today, of course. Yeah. Just mm. by sort of de like hearing it and interpreting the tonal center to be somewhere else. Same notes, yeah. basically, but they're like, no, this is right. in the key of D. Yeah. Right. So, and so that's, that's how you hear a lot of the fiddlers' conventions today, because, you know, all of us young people, we just love that. It sounds great. So I guess I have to ask, um, as someone who's, you are very connected to some very important old-time sources, um, what I want to get into a little bit later as well. But uh, how do you balance looking back and looking forward when we're playing this music? Well, um, unlike a lot of my friends, actually, most of my repertoire, probably 90% plus, I've learned from individual people. Yeah. Starting with my mom and mm. then on to other singers and then fiddlers and banjo pickers. I have something of an apprentice personality. So when I became That's a good. furniture upholsterer, <laughs> I went to trade school and then yeah. I apprenticed for five years and then got to a certain level and you know, could have gone on for a long time more, I guess, and decided I wanted to do other things. And the same thing with journalism. I didn't really have a journalism degree or any other kind of degree mm. for that matter. But I was interested in journalism since I was a child, and so I put myself where the best practitioners I could find were, and really just bootstrapped my way up through the profession um, until I got to the national level, and, um, and then I eventually retired. But uh, the same thing with music for me. I've always learned best if I'm in the presence of another person who does something a lot better than I can do it. And I just, sometimes I don't ask any questions, I'll just watch and listen. Yeah. But that's the decision that I made when I was in my 20s. I wanted, this is one of the things I wanted to do. I really wanted to learn how to play the banjo and the fiddle better uh, than I could. And I wanted to learn more songs and understand more of why they sounded the way they did. So I basically made it possible for myself to be around the people whose music I loved the most. Yeah. Now to answer your question then with that sort of as background, I think of music, this kind of music, as something that evolves through each individual player. And the reason that I feel that way is that I never could play exactly the way any of my mentors could play. Ah. Yeah. And I came to understand what John Hartford later told me in an interview on a totally different topic, but I asked him a question about style. So I thought. And he said very simply something to me that he'd said to many other people, which was that style is a function of limitations. And I yeah. had never really <laughs> thought about it that way. <laughs> yeah. But he thought about style as being partly what comes out of your heart and head, and then partly 
what you physically can bring to the instrument or to the performance of the music. Yeah. And unless you're a 150% trained classical musician who can strike every bow stroke just exactly the way you're instructed to, um, to create the most effective performance of someone else's music, that is to say the composers, yes. and in your case the conductor, you know, who would be out yeah. there with you. Unless you can do that, or if you don't do it or don't choose to, then what will emerge is your take on the music. Some, in some ways, traditional musicians who don't have the most training are lucky, ultimately, because their limitations allow them to speak with a voice that is uniquely theirs. Mm. And that's what I discovered about some of the really great players I met when I was young. They were really good musicians in their own way. Mm. So that actually was a very freeing thing for me. What it told me was... It's perfectly okay to have your own voice. It is also really important to listen to the to your forebears. Yeah. And then create your own voice. Mm. And now I believe that you really are obligated to try to do that if you're going to be a good musician. Yeah. You know, all the all the best musicians we can think of, the big name people in old time of bluegrass music, you know, Bill Monroe, Ralph Stanley, uh, Carter Stanley, Tommy Jarrell, Benton Flippin, Fred Cockrum, Matoki Slaughter. Uh, how many people can, can we name? We can go on and on. Lily Mae Ledford, you know, Cousin Emmy. My, my gosh, what a musician. Uh, we all think of them as traditional musicians. Yeah. And every single one of those people's names is known to us because they embodied a tradition, but they were actually revolutionaries and radicals in some ways. Yeah. They did not play like all the people around them. Therefore, we know their names. They were extra good, hmm. extra unusual. So I think kind of what I'm hearing is the way to be a traditional musician, to uphold a tradition before, but move it forward as opposed to having it be a static archival thing. It has a little bit less to do with what you're specifically playing and more about your posture. So if you have sort of a posture of like, humility and like you're trying to learn you're going to end up creating something different Just i think that's a really good way of putting it i haven't heard it put that way before that's very creative that's really interesting i think it's true thanks paul yeah anytime <laughs> but that i really haven't heard it said that way and that's a very very good way to think about it it's a combination of humility and uh, strength and willpower and confidence I'm trying to figure that out as I, I'm very new to this music, so I'm very desperate for the like, you know, affirmation of of the people in the tr in the tradition who have very precious ideas about what the music is, and but I also have this feeling of like, I wonder if you know, a little bit of insecurity, like oh, I don't think I'll ever be able to just like do that exactly. But I feel like what you're saying is, as long as my kind of heart and posture is correct then I will get a little closer to that while also... I think that's a whole lot of it. You know, my yeah. favorite Luther Davis story that I've told a lot to a lot of people is, uh, you know, he, he was a really old-time Galax Virginia fiddler, and when I met him, he was 93 years old, and uh, he was just the classic American Gothic farmer guy uh, from Galax. He'd been a deputy sheriff in his early days. He was a great carpenter, and he had his way of doing things. He was an upright, solid, upstanding citizen. He was a county commissioner at one point. He was, he was really, he was a good guy. But he also felt that his fiddle tunes should be played the way they should be played. Yeah. 
<laughs> and uh, he was not at all hesitant to reach right out and smack you on yeah. the shoulder of the head with his bow if he didn't like what he heard. This is a good way of getting fiddle lessons. Yeah. But one day he stopped me and said, uh, he said, uh, with about my bowing, you know, he said, you are going that away while I'm a going this away. <laughs> and I, I said, Luther, what am I supposed to do about that? Expecting a little, you know, uh, instruction maybe. He said, well, you oughtn't to do it. <laughs> so I tried to get things going in the right direction, you know. And, uh, and then a, a, a day came when I realized that in my lifetime, I was not going to be able to do everything that he was doing. Yeah. And I thought, well, what about that? And that's when I started thinking even more about all of the other fiddle players that I knew and banjo pickers that I had met who were so good and whom I you know, appreciated so deeply. And um, much later, I asked Benton Flippin about how he learned fiddle tunes. Well, you know, he was just a wild fiddle player, if anyone's ever heard him. You know, any, yeah. the first time you hear him, he's just slipping and sliding and syncopating and all sorts of oh, was, I didn't know that note was in the tune. Was that important? And you realize, you know, here's someone who's perceiving a tune totally differently from the way 98% of people perceive it, and it's better for it. Yeah. You know, sometimes it could be worse with some musicians, but with Benton, most of the time, it really was better. Yeah. Um, and I asked him, I was doing an interview with him for Fiddler Magazine. I did a, a story on him for Fiddler Magazine. And uh, so I was over at his house, and I said, you know, <clears throat> When you learned a tune from, say, Tommy Gerald, who was your nearby neighbor, knowing they sounded you know, very, very, very distinct from one another, I said, when you went over to his, Tommy's house to learn, did, did you try to learn the tune the way he played it? And he looked at me almost in surprise and said, oh, no. He said, uh, he said when I learn an old tune, I learn it from someone, but I learn it my way. Yeah. And that was another significant thing. I, I started to think of Bill Monroe and yeah. Ralph Stanley, who said the very same thing to an interviewer on NPR. I forget, it was one of my colleagues, I don't remember which one it was, but I was going through tapes of Ralph Stanley on the air with people when I was preparing an advance obituary for him. And he was in an interview and someone said to him, when you decide to learn a song, say you hear it from a recording, do you go back and listen to it again and again? And Ralph said, he said, no, once I hear it, I don't ever want to hear it anymore. The interview missed what he was saying. It was a southern <laughs> colloquialism, the way he was speaking. But what he meant, and so they just went on to the next question. And right. So he hadn't answered it, but he had answered it. What he said, what he meant was, I want to understand the song, but I don't want to hear that recording of it to the point that it interferes with my making yes. it my song yeah. and my tune. So I've heard that repeatedly from some of the best so-called traditional musicians yes. I ever met. And don't forget, Ralph Stanley proudly would say to people, I play the old-time style of what they call bluegrass music. Yes. He didn't even consider himself a bluegrass yeah. musician. Okay. But still and all, within that old-time tradition, any tune or song he played was going to be his. Yeah. And I thought that was very cool. It just freed me up to be the musician that I was going to become, whatever that winds up being. It's never over until you, you know, get the deep six. You know, you're still, you should be progressing all the way out, right? I think so. Yeah. Well, I have, I have so many follow-ups and things to ask, and I w would love to just do an entire episode on advanced obituaries that you've written. But <laughs> I've never that would be a that fun show to do, actually. <laughs> oh my goodness. That was but we should probably play another tune because yeah, uh, we're about, at a live um, venue here. So. How, about, how about going back and speaking of this, 
Um, you want to play in D for a moment? Yes. And I'm going to tune up to a resonant old-time Scots-Irish tuning that a lot of people in North Carolina and Virginia were still using when I met them. So heritage comes through the tunings on the banjo, you know, and the fiddle, as well as everything else. Um, so another fiddle player that I knew who I really, really loved, he was probably the most complete old-time musician I ever met in all of the big ways, was Tommy Jarrell. It was Thomas Jefferson yes. Jarrell, Surrey County, North Carolina. And the big thing that I found from, out from him, the big thing that I learned about making music on one of these old instruments was to keep everything moving. He kept all the strings going. So he'd play in these resonant tunings that would make a chord, you know, and he'd pick up the high strings and the low strings, one against the other, and he talked to me about that. He was able to speak about it. Yeah. He said, so you really need to be accompanying yourself and doing the melody and doing the bass. And he made sounds with his fiddle bow that other players would consider unmusical, but in fact, for him, they were part and parcel of the music. Yeah. And if they go away, all of a sudden it misses something. So this is a tune that I learned to play on the fiddle from him. I know several other versions too, but it's Mississippi Sawyer. And then I changed it a lot too, because what I wound up doing was, especially on the top part, I wound up doing a different type of bowing that he would have done on some other tunes that brought out the high and low voices of the instrument a little bit more than he did. Yeah. And I just like it that way, and it reminds me of him, and every time I play it, I think of him. And I put this on my um, old-time Tiki Parlor album with, uh, that David Bragger recorded, so anyone who's interested at some point can go and find that, and you know, and you can see me playing it in detail yeah. and what's happening. So, uh, so this is my version of Mississippi Sawyer that is reminiscent for me of Tommy Gerald. But.
very good. <laughs> How did you meet Tommy? Oh, sort of by accident. Thomas Jefferson Gerald. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, his father's name was, his son's name was Benjamin Franklin Gerald. He named his son wow. B.F. Gerald. <laughs> and his, uh, his dad's name was Ben Gerald also. But um, I was looking around to uh, hear more and better fiddle players. I was in my early to mid-twenties, I guess, when I heard a recording of Tommy Gerald. And I'd been to some fiddler's conventions in the South, and I was aware of people like Fred Cockrum and Arthur Smith, and I had recordings of John Ashby of Virginia, yeah. who was a very interesting longbow fiddle player. And I had become aware of uh, Benton Flippin through hearing some Fiddler's Conventions recordings, and then at one point he came up north and I got to see him play. I was raised in the north and from a family that was half northern and half southern, and uh, got my first music from my mom, so this was in the family. But anyway, I went to hear <laughs> Benton Flippin play, and uh, um, then uh, I was introduced to Tommy Jarrell at his home by a good friend of mine named Ray Alden, who did a lot of collecting, music collecting. Yes. And I had met Ray in the early 70s. Um, right around the time I was training as an upholsterer, and I, I had gone to New York City for a couple of years to do that. And I saw Ray at a little place called the Folklore Center, which had been run by Israel Young, Izzy Young, in the 1950s and 60s. And it was still there in Greenwich Village, not far from where I was living in this little one-room apartment. And uh, Ray was just a great friend to me. He became a fast friend very quickly. And... Uh, my dad had just died, so that was cool, because Ray was a little bit older than I was, yeah. about 15 or so years older. It was neat to have somebody just a little bit older to give me some ideas of what I might want to do yeah. as a, an adult person. And um, so uh, that's how I met Tommy, and we became friendly. And in 1980, I studied the banjo with him for a year under a National Endowment for the Arts Folk Arts Apprenticeship Grant, yeah. which paid the senior artist. You know, the young person, you were um, you know, responsible for yourself, but it provided yes. a little bit of a stipend for the senior artist to spend time yeah. with someone. Very good. And that was a really cool thing to do. So that's how I met Tommy. Hmm. Yeah, what did he, uh, so you specifically studied banjo with him? Yeah, I actually, I, have, I was going to study originally with Fred Cockrum, yeah. who was also a really good banjo player. Yes. And a wonderful fiddler as well. Fred passed away right around the time we were supposed to start. Hmm. And I knew Tommy and had been friendly with him as well. And the uh, National Endowment for the Arts suggested, well, why don't you do something if you'd be willing to with Tommy Gerald? Because we have this budgeted. Yes. You know how government agencies operate. If they can't spend it, they might lose it. Yeah. So they made this grant. And uh, they said, would you be willing to work with, with Mr. Gerald? Because you don't have to do a full application. We know who he is. Yes. You know, all that. And I said, yeah. Studying banjo with Tommy Gerald yeah, is nothing I was nothing not going to gonna turn at. that down. Yeah. Because also, I had noticed that he was a really interesting player. And as any good reporter knows, if you see a big crowd buzzing around somebody, go somewhere else and get the real story. Yeah. So everybody was buzzing around Tommy because of his fiddle playing. I thought, well, I think he's an interesting banjo picker. Yeah. So this is what I want to find out about. And I, I was not sorry. What did you find out? Well, the same thing as about his fiddle playing. He was different from the other round peak banjo players. You could tell that he was from that area. But once again, he thought of the banjo as a complete instrument with melody notes and lower notes and 
intermediate notes and backing itself up and his claw hammer strum without getting into too much detail for non-banjo players was basically backwards from what a lot of people did. There was no strum at the end. He rarely used a fifth string. It was all based on drop thumb and inner strings and it was completely fascinating. When I realized that, my jaw nearly dropped to the floor. Yeah. You know, the day that I figured that out. I went, okay, now I understand why I sound so cool a little bit. I understand a little bit of it. Yeah. So those were among the many things that I learned from him. And then he told me he's trying to do the same things with the banjo as with the fiddle. So he wanted to do all of these things, melody, accompaniment, drone, rhythm, backup, all on one instrument, and he was articulate and he could explain it, which a lot of other folks could not. It's just, it was I don't fascinating. know, just watch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he would yeah. actually break it down. Yeah. He's a good teacher. Yeah, he Very was. Good. He was a great teacher. Truly yeah. great. So, so I learned a lot of tunes from him. And I also learned that once again, you can play your tunes your way. Hmm. And that's what I've done with one of the fiddle tunes that I like to play, which is Pretty Little Girl. You want to play that yes, one? Yes, it's, it's up in A. You want to tune? I'm just keeping you tuning your banjo all the time, Cameron. That's all right. He's, he's young. It builds character. If you're going to play the banjo, just tune it a whole lot. I snuck it into tune while you were talking. Okay. And now it's there. So I took Pretty Little Girl. And with all the people that I'd heard it played, you know, who had heard played it, play it, I sort of uh, came up with the way I personally heard it. So I took a low part from Luther Davis, and I took some of the phrasing from Tommy Jarrell, and I put in my own top part in the key of A that sort of reflects an old G version that I'd heard on an ancient recording of, I think it was the Bogtrotters out around Galax. Anyway, I just wanted to do something new with Pretty Little Girl, so I made my own tune of it. I just put this on my new fiddle album, Red Dog, and uh, it came out pretty well, I think. And anyway, here's here's just a banjo and fiddle version of it. The, the fiddle album has a full band, you know. But anyway, hope you enjoy this one. Anyway.
I've been gone, quit it there with the red dress on. I'm gonna get that, I'm gonna get that, I'm gonna get that That's the way I like to play it. Yeah. And, uh, Very good. <laughs> just the way I do it. So um, I believe you're going to play us some banjo songs, play huh? a little banjo. And, yeah, the banjo was my first instrument, you know. I never really picked up the guitar until quite late, and I don't play a lot of it. I enjoy playing it. But, and the fiddle I got started to play when I was about 20 years old, but the banjo I started when I was 10. How did, how did you start playing the banjo? Well, I really loved the sound of it. I don't actually know where I heard the first one, but they were around, and it was the 1950s, and you could hear them on the radio back in those days. And um, Mom would take us to square dances sometimes that would remind her, I think, of her upbringing. And so there was usually some sort of a pre-bluegrass-type band there, and it almost always had a banjo. Yeah. And then she had some recordings as well. Dad wasn't really into it. He didn't understand old-time music. He was from another world, you know. And... and um, so I just, something hit me about the banjo when I heard some of the recordings that we had and would see it played occasionally live. It just knocked me over, especially in the old styles. I remember we had some recordings. We had a recording with George Pigram and one with Aubrey Ramsey that mom and dad gave me at one point. And I just, I don't know, I fell in love and I just had to do it. And mom wouldn't let me have a banjo until I was 10 years old, but she finally did. Yeah. <laughs> Later I found out she was trying to put me off because she didn't want me to get it too early and give up. Yes. So she was... <laughs> strategic. Yes, yeah, she sounds was like strategic, she knew you well. Yeah. yeah, strategic parenting. But at the time it just seemed mean, you know. But, <laughs> but... So I wound up, I started playing as a finger-picking banjo player, and then I learned claw hammer, and then I went back to doing as much finger-picking as I do claw hammer. So now I just play whatever I want. I Often don't care. in the middle of a tune. Yes, I just don't back care. And forth. I just don't care. Lovely. Love it. If the tune needs it, that's what I try to give it. And because my mom learned a lot of her songs from older African-American musicians in the 1920s, that, that sort of musical sensibility was in our house from the get-go, because mom was singing all the time. So when, you, when you say that she learned from them, do you mean from recordings? No, or do you people. mean in, in person? People. She had a lot of African-American yeah. people in her yeah. life. Yeah, and there were a couple, music. and two in particular were two brothers. Their names were Harry and John Calloway, but there were others around. But those were the ones that I remember her talking about the mm. most. And this was in uh, Bedford County in Virginia, yeah. when she would spend all of her summers there, even after the family moved north when she was seven years, seven, eight, nine years old, somewhere in there. So that type of singing and blues sounds and all were integral to my musical sensibility, which is one reason, I think, why I wound up loving Fred Cockrum's and Benton Flippin's fiddle playing so yes. much. It spoke to me just that way. Mm. So anyway, this is a song that actually was not in our family repertoire. I'll sing one of those in a little bit, I hope. But... Um, this one is called When the Train Comes Along, and some people might remember it from Uncle Dave Macon and the Fruit Jar Drinkers playing it sort of in a minstrel banjo style, like a vaudeville show almost, or a medicine show style. But the old African-American version doesn't sound anything like that. Yeah. And I remember Elizabeth Cotton singing it with a guitar. I remember seeing her do it. She was a banjo player, too. And then I found some really early recordings of it, too, African-American musicians whose names are escaping right at the moment. But... That song was around, and it was not a minstrel song any sooner yeah. than it was something else. Yeah. 
So I want to sing good. my version of it. I just took it and put it back on the banjo because I'll bet someone was playing it on a banjo too way a long time ago and there's just no recordings of it. Yet. Mm. When you hear that whistle blow You know I'm ready to go I've been waiting at the station for the train comes along When the train comes along When the train comes along I'll be waiting at the station when the train comes along down the track Well, you know it'll never be back I'll be waiting at the station when the train comes along When the train comes along When the train comes along I'll be waiting at the station when the train comes along Hear that whistle blow Oh, you know I'm ready to go I'll be waiting at the station When the train comes along When the train comes along When the train comes along I'll be waiting at the station When the train comes along that takes that song back into history a little bit I just think it you know probably was somewhere back in there and that's how you get a lot of white country blues and my mm -hmm. mom was a white country blues singer and a lot of other unknown untold people were Hobart Smith was a great one the Virginia yeah. banjo picker man he, he really could sing some blues mm. and um, I always tell people I say you know people were communicating whether they were allowed to socially or not yeah and I'm just rereading uh, yeah. I'm reading uh, Maya Angelou's uh, 
don't know why the caged bird sings right now. And she's, she describes what it was like living in Stamps, Arkansas as a, as a young black child and how steep, sharp the demarcation were and how uh, demarcations were and how very dangerous it was to go past any of these social boundaries. It was just physically, mortally dangerous. So, uh, but still, people were able to communicate musically one way or another. And that song sort of, to me, is a little bit of a symbol of that. So. Yeah. I, re I really appreciate how um, you use your platform on stage and on your show. I was just listening to your most recent episode, and you were talking about um, um, Al Alice Gerard and Hannah yeah. Dickens, you know, and yeah. um, talking about the diversity of this music. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people like to f fetishize it a little yeah. bit yeah. as this sort of white male hillbilly thing when really it's a lot it's not it's not it's a lot more than that um yeah. i really appreciate you using your um yeah your position as an authority to uh just very frankly even earlier when you were saying like this isn't some cute minstrel pop song this yeah. is like a a real a real song with a lot more depth to it yeah and there's a whole lot of heartache to it because a lot of people were traveling not by choice or or they have had to for one reason or another, or you know things get impossible and you go somewhere. And I know a lot of traveling songs for some reason. They're just in our family's repertoire. But yeah, I mean, there's just a lot to these. Yeah. A lot to them. Hmm. So. Well, we're running short on time. Uh, sh should we do two more for the actual interview yeah. and then uh, and then a bonus yeah. track? That's very good. So y'all get to hear the bonus track since you're here. Normally you have to pay for it. But well, yeah, what do you want to play next? Well, why don't we play Red Clay Country, which is from my mom's family. And it, yes, and lovely. It kind of lets you hear the resemblance to it and uh, When the Train Comes Along. And when I heard When the Train Comes Along, I thought, oh, yeah, this is another of those wonderful songs. And this is also the precursor to the well-known bluegrass song, Nine Pound Hammer. Yes. It's an old African-American work song, and it was also sung sort of in a spiritual way as well. So it's really cool. I'm going back to the red clay country. I'm going back to the red clay country. I'm going back to the red clay country. That's my home, that's my home. If you see my agent, Papa, if you see my I'm going back to the red clay country. I'm going back to the red clay country. That's my home, baby. That's my home. If you see my long-haired buddy, if you see my long-haired buddy, if you see my long-haired buddy, Tell her I'm gone, baby. Tell her I'm gone. I'm going back to the red clay country. I'm going back to the red clay country. I'm going back to the red clay country. 
That's my home, that's my home Take this hammer, gave it to the captain Take this hammer, gave it to the captain Take this hammer, gave it to the captain Tell him I'm gone, baby, tell him I'm gone If he asked you where I've gone to if he asked you where I've gone to If he asked you where I've gone to Tell him you don't know, baby Tell him you don't know I'm going back to the Red Clay Country I'm going back to the Red Clay Country I'm going back to the Red Clay Country That's my home, baby that's my home Old Aunt Hattie Come run to the window Old Aunt Hattie Come run to the window Old Aunt Hattie Come run to the window I'm passing by, baby I'm passing by I'm going back to The Red Clay Country I'm going back to The Red Clay Country I'm going back to the Red Clay Country That's my home, baby That's my home I love songs about quitting jobs I know, it's, it's just so, so satisfying. great Yeah, you know, take this job and <laughs> I'm done, I'm going back to the Red Clay Country Oh, so good so old, old Jane Henderson said, uh, she's one of my mom's old friends, and I, when she was 94, she said, yeah, I think that song came through the tobacco warehouses in Danville, Virginia, through the tobacco workers, and that's how yeah. Harry and John got it, and all these people started to sing it. But it went on to become a very well-known song, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we have one song left um, for the actual interview portion. Mm -hmm. um, usually this is the time when I ask my guests, where do we go to get your music whether it's the people here in the audience now or later listening to this well let's see you can go to cd baby for my latest album but also if you're online just go and find my website and very shortly everything will be up there listed in terms of how you can get it all the recordings that i've been involved with i'm going to be working on that really soon now it's paulbrown.us.com very good. There's a lot of Paul Browns, so paulbrown.us.com yes. was the one I was able to get. Yeah. So you can find me there, and uh, we'll have some information about where to get recordings, both of me and other folks, people I've recorded, some of the old musicians. So there it is. This has been so delightful. Thank you so much. It's been fantastic. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been great. What a wonderful visit. What do you want to play for this last team? Well... This is an old blues song that Mike Seeger and I recorded years ago on our Red Clay Country album. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, Way Down in North Carolina was the title of the album. Red Clay Country's one of mine. And uh, it's called The Girl I Love Blues. And Mike's dad, Charles Seeger, who was a, an eminent early folklorist, recorded it in South Carolina. And... Um, the two gentlemen, I'm getting their names in bits and pieces right now, so forgive me, but that will be on the website because they're important. They're the people who supplied the song to Mr. Seeger. Thaddeus Goodson and, um, anyway, 
it's there. PaulBrown.us.com. Yeah. Go find it. <laughs> and uh, Girl, I Love Blues. Sure don't want to go 
Paul's performance dates, links to Across the Blue Ridge, his traditional music podcast and radio show, info about his journalism career, and contact information are all at his website, paulbrown.us.com. His albums Red Clay Country and Red Dog are available on CD Baby, his solo album and DVD, as well as Bryant and Brown, his album with Mike Bryant, Marcia Bryant, and Terry McMurray, are available on the Old Time Tiki Parlor website. All of those albums are linked individually in the show notes on your device and the Facebook post for this episode. Go get them. Don't forget to sign up to support Get Up in the Cool on Patreon this month for some exclusive rewards. That's patreon.com slash getupinthecool. Or go to getupinthecool.com and click the Patreon button. And if you can't support the show financially, make sure to like, follow, and join the Get Up in the Cool Facebook page and group and share the video posts so more people can hear about the show. For any potential sponsors out there, I'll read ad copy for your music festival, camp, or whatever it is that you're selling. You can buy an ad spot by going to getupinthecool.com and clicking store. You'll get a pretty dramatic discount for buying three or more. Thanks again to Elderly Instruments for all the support. You can visit their website at elderly.com. I'm recording live Get Up In The Cool episodes at Earful of Fiddle in Michigan in June and the Kauai Old Time Gathering in Hawaii in November. So buy your tickets now so we can hang out. And I still have some room for other old time schools and festivals in my schedule. If anyone wants to hire me, you can reach me at getupinthecool at gmail.com. I can also teach banjo workshops and perform solo or band sets while I'm there. If you want to hang out with me twice a week, I have another podcast called Think Outside the Box Set. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts or boxset.website. If you're having trouble finding anything I mentioned in this outro, remember, it's all linked in the show notes on your device, my website, and the Get Up in the Cool Facebook page and group. That's all for now, friends. Thanks for listening. Come back same time next week to Get Up in the Cool.